HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Café Patachou, a student union for adults since 1989 in the heart of Indianapolis. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Black culture through the complicated lens of agriculture. We speak to Carla Hall about her uncompromising soul food recipes. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I changing my family's history for another culture? We also hear from Gabriela Rodriguez at Harlem Grown's Youth Farm Uptown. About empowerment and, you know, community resilience building through this work. Um, Food is kind of just a vehicle. Leah Penniman addresses feeling like an outsider in the farming community. I could count on my two hands the number of of people who appeared to be POC, people of color. Mm. And so I literally go around little slips of paper and and say, hey, meet at one o'clock under this tree so we can talk. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today I'm here with Bob Quinn, an organic grain farmer from Montana and the author of the new book, Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. Bob, welcome. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here. Um, congrats on the book release, first of all. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to have you here for a few reasons. First of all, uh, we were talking a little bit before, but it's very rare for me to have farmers from the West actually in studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Well, it's not exactly across town for me either. So right. It's, it's, you came, what, I think you said 3,000 miles? Well, at least over two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, you're on your book tour, so you've got, I'm sure you've got lots of interviews, um, but I'm excited that you're here uh, with us today. Um, and you have decades and decades of farming experience. Um, And, you know, I was really struck by the name of your book because right in the title, it starts to make connections between 
agriculture practices, rural economies, health. And I, I think the way in which those things overlap is really important and doesn't get talked about that often. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we dive into all of that, um, let's just give listeners a little bit of background. Um, so you grew up on a farm in Montana. Is that correct? Yes, it's our family farm. My grandfather started in, in 1920. So next year will be our 100th anniversary. Wow. Okay. And you, but you weren't always there. You left, you got a PhD, you came back. Did you always want to be a farmer? Actually, I always wanted to work with plants and I love science. And I thought, well, I'll just keep going to school as long as they pay me. I was very fortunate to get the um, scholarships and I just kept going year after year. And all of a sudden, 10 years had gone by and I had a PhD and and uh, I found that academia really wasn't quite what I expected. And the uh, pursuit of science was a little bit obscured sometimes by um, kingdom building and just the seeking of grants and the scrambling for money. And um, rather than a cooperative effort to really pass, um, uh, push forward or push out the, uh, the uh, quest for knowledge. Right. So you, and you thought you could do that on a farm. Well, I decided to go back to the farm um, because it's what I knew. And uh, soon after I got there, my whole farm became my laboratory and my garden. Mm. Um, and so in the beginning, um, you weren't farming organically, right? Right. We were raised on a, a conventional farm. My dad was one of the first to adopt um, um, the use of herbicides in the early 50s and then experimented with chemical fertilizers uh, soon after that. Uh, he was always um, innovating and on the cutting edge of what was new and exciting, and, and that's how we look at it in those days. It was new and exciting. Right. And, and for him, who grew up at a time without um, uh, herbicides, uh, the problems with weeds was, was real. I right. mean, they didn't do rotations. They didn't do anything to, to um, uh, decrease that problem, so it became worse and worse. So they looked at herbicides as sort of a, a godsend, and um, no one really questioned um, uh, started to question the uh, long-term effects or any of that sort of thing when we first were, were introduced to them. Right. And so what made you start to question it and, and kind of make that decision to transition the farm to organic? Well, I had the opportunity. I started a small business to sell our grain directly to whole grain bakers in Southern California because we had come back to a farm that was big enough for one family, but not quite big enough for two. And my parents were still there. My dad wasn't uh, quite retirement age, so we farmed together for oh, nearly 10 years. And um, I was looking for something to add more value to the farm. And once I did that... Um, our customer in California, after the first year, asked us for some organic grain. Mm. And I didn't really believe in organic. I had heard about it when I was in California going to school at UC Davis, but I wasn't um, a believer. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I started to, I found some organic grain, and when I started to meet organic farmers and hearing their stories, um, it really perked my interest. And the idea of growing your own fertilizers to me was very intriguing because of my plant science background. And I thought that was really interesting. And mm. the idea of controlling weeds through um, non-chemical means also was very intriguing. So I started with very small experiments and, and I was uh, almost an instant convert. <laughs> yeah. And after that became a, a huge promoter. Right. Um, and so what, is, what does your farm look like today? Like, can you give listeners kind of an idea of um, what you're growing, how big it is? Okay. Um, yeah. Well, in Montana, the average farm is about 25 to 2,700 acres. Um, we're out in the 
on the, the eastern part of Montana, eastern two-thirds of Montana is prairie. So we're in the upper Great Plains, or northern Great Plains. Our farm is about 4,000 acres. Um, about 1,000 of that is pasture for cattle uh, because it's not able to be cultivated uh, because of, of the roughness the roughness of the terrain and, and cattle fits well. Uh, for our, we have a nine-year rotation. We grow four different types of soil-building crops, such as sweet clover, alfalfa, and peas, and buckwheat, and every other year. And, and we sandwich that between five years of cash crops, such as winter wheat, um, spring wheat, which we're growing um, uh, kabut Khorasan wheat and ancient wheat. Mm-hmm. I grow also um, barleys, Hollis barley and purple barley. We grow Ohio Lake safflower and also some peas and some um, alfalfa for alfalfa hay for organic dairies. So it's a, we have a lot of diversity, which keeps the whole thing moving and, and working properly. Right. And is it um, is it pretty rare where you are in Montana um, to be organic? Well, it's less rare than it used to be. When 30 years ago, when I first started, it was extremely rare. Yeah. And my friends thought, and neighbors, thought I had been in California too long. <laughs> and they were assured, they were just assured that I would go broke or quit um, the organic experiment, as they uh, referred to it, mm. within just a few years. Uh, but neither of those happened. And now even a few of our neighbors have also converted. And Montana is uh, leading this country in the production of organic wheat. Huh. Even though Kansas has this, uh, for conventional wheat, has this out, out, out uh, growing it by two or three times. Organic wheat, we lead the country. We also lead the country in organic lentils and, uh, <clears throat> and, and some oilseed crops. Interesting. Is is Montana um, is the climate like particularly suited to growing wheat? Yes. Okay. It's hot and dry, uh, which wheat loves <clears throat> for uh, ripening and producing high protein. And so the wheat is always under stress. And you know, if you're under stress, you perform a little better. Yeah. It's not too much stress, so it has to right. be a balance. But the uh, protein that we can produce uh, normally in in our part of the state is superior to most other in the country and therefore it's performing better in in bread and now I'm focusing just not on protein but um, ancient heirloom varieties which add flavors and and taste to that mix to make a superior product. Right so and so one of those varieties is the Coruscant wheat that you mentioned right? Yes and so that's um, that's a big part of what you do right? I've been working on that for 30 years (laughs) it's turned into an enormous project but a very satisfying one. Um, And Actually, so I, I want to walk through that. First of all, a really important question. Um, I don't know if I pronounced the word correctly. So is it Kamut? Yes. Okay. Kamut. We Kamut. say Kamut. See, yeah. I, I didn't. Well, that was pretty close. That was pretty close. <laughs> okay. So Kamut um, is um, kind of the brand name for That's the brand name, right. wheat. Mm-hmm. Okay. We wanted to have a brand so we could protect the ancient grain. Once we had an inkling of its... Uh, this, this, unique qualities. I wanted to protect that so it just couldn't be um, put on the market under all kinds of marketing cleverness and it may be mixed with other grains and try to be sold cheap and and fool people. So we wanted to preserve it as a pure line um, and I really was completely sold on organic by that time and I wanted to promote organic agriculture. So Kamut is only available as an organically grown grain. Interesting. Anywhere. Anywhere in the whole world. That's the the rule. So um, we look at the grain as a free gift from our creator. Um, Should be available for anyone to grow. But if they want to use the Kamut trademark, well, that belongs to me. Got it. And I get to make the rules. 
since I own it in the first rule. <laughs> and the first rule is it has to always be organically grown. Ah. The second rule, you have to tell the truth about it. So you can't pretend it's not wheat and gluten-free and some of the things that have been done with other um, ancient grains and other ancient wheats even. Um, so we're very, I'm, I'm very big on truth and labeling and, and not trying to um, make something more than it is, but just tell the story as it is. It's good enough. Right. So how did you first discover this particular ancient wheat? Oh, well, that's a, how much time we have? <laughs> <laughs> Not too long. Okay, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. Well, I had first seen it when I was in high school, actually. Um, oh, wow. There's this old fellow, he's probably younger than I am now, but he looked old to me then, and he was passing out this giant wheat at the county fair, and um, he saw me walking close by, and he says, Hey, Sonny, he says, uh, why don't you come over here? He says, I'll give you some of King Tut's wheat. I said, wow, okay, <laughs> well, I, I went over, and he poured a handful out of the can into my hand, and it was, it was giant. It was three times the size of regular wheat. Of course, mm-hmm. I was raised in a wheat farm, so I knew what wheat was supposed to look like. Right. And um, I don't know what I ever did with it, but the, the, the uh, legend going around at the time was that a fellow from our county had um, been in a bar one night in um, Portugal, he was in the Air Force, and the guy sitting next to him started telling him about his travels to Egypt and how he had taken this grain out of a tomb in Egypt, you know, very mysterious, <laughs> and, uh, all kinds of um, intrigue. And so he gave him about 30 or 40 kernels, and the fellow sent it back to his father in Montana, and it grew, which should have been the first clue it didn't come out of a tomb, you see, because mm. grain doesn't last 4,000 years in a tomb and still be viable. Um, <laughs> most wheat will last 15 to 20 years before it starts to decline. Still pretty long. It's, yeah, it's pretty yeah. long, but it's yeah. not 4,000. Right. So anyway, it grew, and it was much taller, as most um, uh, heritage and old wheats are, okay. before they were bred for shortness. And it was uh, much bigger. That was unusual. And it was a, turned out to be a very close relative of Durham which meant that it didn't make bread in a traditional way, the American white bread way, um, this is in the 50s, uh, very easily. Mm. So there was really very little interest in it commercially. And it was spread around as a novelty for uh, about 10 years or so. That's when I saw it, the very kind of end of its novelty period. Mm. And then it disappeared. And when I was in college at uh, UC Davis, then about 14 years later, so this is about 76 now, I was eating a package of corn nuts one day, just idly passing the time, taking a little break from my my laboratory work. (laughs) And um, it said on the back of the package, corn nuts made with a giant corn. And I thought, oh, I wonder if they'd be interested in a giant wheat. So I called them up, and they were located in in Berkeley, or uh, near Oakland at that time, quite close to Davis. And they said, oh, we might be interested in that. And I called my dad, and I said, Dad, see if you can find some of that old King Tut's wheat. <laughs> and um, within a few days, he found a, a pint jar about three-quarters full, and he sent me a couple of tablespoons, and, and, um, and they roasted it up. And I said, I called them then another week later, and they said, wow, this is the best stuff we've ever had. He says, we'll take 10,000 pounds. Oh, my gosh. And I said, well, I uh, really don't have 10,000 pounds. <laughs> um, I, I didn't tell him I didn't even have one pound. But uh, I said, if you just hang on a year or two, I'll, I'll have all you want. And so we started growing it in our garden and and then some in Santa California and grew it uh, over the winter. And so we multiplied it up to about 50 pounds. And I called back and the fellow I had talked to was gone. No one had heard of it or was interested. And that was the end of that. Mm. So it sat in our garage for about five years until 
we went to our first food show in California, Health mm. Food Show, because our business of selling grain directly to bakers by that time had grown to include stone ground whole wheat flour. Okay. Now we had something to show at a food show. And uh, my mother and father went with me, and my dad took some of this old grain, and he was showing it to everybody. At the end of the show, my cousin and I, who were kind of put this business together, had our pockets just full of referrals. We were thrilled to death. Mm. My dad had one referral, <laughs> but he was thrilled to death. So we took out all 50 pounds, and we planted a half acre, and that was in um, 86. And 30 years later, in um, 16, we planted or had... Um, had planted, contracted with about 250 other organic farmers besides ourselves, nearly 100,000 acres. Wow. So it, it surpassed all of our expectations as far as uh, success in the uh, marketplace. Right. Well, and so you said it, the, the first thing you noticed about it was it was so big, right? yes. it was tall. What's the benefit of that? Like what? Well, there's, that's, a, that's the novelty part. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there's really, that's really not a, a big benefit. You have to be a little bit careful how you uh, combine it because it's, it's so hard. It's easily cracked. And so the size makes that even more problematic. But what was uh, interesting is not that it was so big, but what was inside. Okay. And the most interesting thing, when we first started, uh, passed around pasta that had been made with it by a friend in California, just as kind of a demo, we gave it to, or my dad actually gave it to a lady who had terrible food allergies and she couldn't eat anything close to wheat. Mm. And she'd be completely just uh, uh, on the couch. I mean, her muscles would give out their strength and she was um, incapacitated nearly. I would have never given her this stuff. Right. But she used to do uh, muscle testing and she could tell that uh, it might be something she could try. So she tried it and she called up the next day and she says, what is this stuff? She said, when I ate it, it made me feel better. Hmm. I said, wow, never heard anything like that before. Because yeah. we knew that she couldn't touch wheat. And they said, well, we'll give you some more. And she gave some to her sister who had similar problems, not as severe, but she had many food allergies, and not only including wheat. And not only could she eat this, but after she'd eaten it for a couple of weeks, she was less allergic to other things that had previously affected her. Huh. And when, then, then the scientist in me kind of woke up right, and right. said, wow, this is really interesting. I wonder what's going on and why it is different. And from then on, my quest, um, I should have been paying more attention to marketing, but my real quest was to figure out how this was different and what, what we had done to modern wheat so that so many people couldn't eat it anymore. Right. Now it's nearly 20% of the people that can't eat modern wheat. As a wheat farmer, that's embarrassing to me. Yeah. And I don't like that. Um, and so I wonder, well, where did we make a wrong turn? Because wheat has built civilizations for tens of thousands of years and um, been the staff of life. Mm -hmm. as it's referred right. to. Um, so what has happened in the last 70 years to change all that so that 70 or 20% of the people can no longer eat it? Something has gone really off the track. Mm -hmm. And so rather than focus on the problem, I have tried to focus on the solution. And the solution seemed to be right in my hands. But I, wanted to, I really wanted to understand it more and yeah. say, well, you can eat this, we think, but we don't know why. Yeah. I, I wanted to really have some understanding. So we started on research and to try to figure that out. You're, you're starting it now? And, or, no, and we've been working on it for 30 years, but we've finally hit pay dirt about 10 or 12 years ago okay. with a group in Italy. Um, I had a hard time finding scientists in America that would take me serious and want to work with me because most of them would say, well, wheat's wheat. All wheat has gluten. Your wheat has gluten. It's no different than anybody else's. Mm. And and uh, if people are having trouble, it's mostly in their head. Yeah. And that was the and 30 years ago, that was the attitude with a lot of the um, 
people looking at this problem. Mm. And it took many years for those people who um, uh, had trouble to convince people it wasn't in their head, it was more in their stomach yeah. and other places in their body that was having adverse reactions. And um, we found a team in, in Italy that was willing to work with us at the University of Bologna, which is nearly a thousand years old, so they've been around a while, mm. um, and the University of Florence. Um, they're... Uh, there we were working with the um, medical research hospital, and they started studying living systems. Before then, we had just been doing in vitro and anal chemical analysis and all this sort of thing, and we couldn't really see anything that was significantly different. I mean, it was in the ballpark of, of modern wheat. You couldn't point mm. to one thing or another and say, well, this is why. Um, but when they started doing research on living systems, starting with a... Um, an animal study first, a small rat study. We just did one of those, but we published three papers on it. We first <clears throat> discovered that it had a higher antioxidant capacity than hmm. modern wheat. We, and the tests were that we'd feed either one group modern wheat or one group ancient grain. But the big surprise that we didn't expect, and was kind of found uh, serendipitously from, from a lady that was just observing, and she observed that the um, rats on the Kamut diet had no inflammation. Mm. And, uh, and they should have had inflammation because they were giving shots of a drug that made free radicals and also caused inflammation. So the diet was protecting them from inflammation. Mm. And about this time, the Wheat Belly book came out, and, and um, Dr. Davis said, well, all wheat causes inflammation. So I called up my friends in, in Italy, and I said, I read it twice, and I called him, and I talked to him about a research, and yeah. he wasn't very encouraging, but... I called my friends in um, Italy and I said, could we be so lucky to have still the um, material from the rats from the controls that never received this injection because they're the control lots? And they said, oh, yes, we have everything. I said, well, look at the, the organs and see if there's any inflammation from just the wheat diet from the modern wheat. And there was. Hmm. So we were confirming what Dr. Davis was saying. But the new and exciting um, finding was that the ancient wheat produced anti-inflammatory responses to even protect the system against inflammation. Right. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of people in the, in the health um, world talk about the difference between modern wheat and like that the gluten molecule might be different and that's why so many people have gluten intolerance mm -hmm. and it's like the way that the wheat has been bred, not yes. wheat in general. And, and I've, I, but I haven't seen a lot of science, so I'm, this is really fascinating. Well, we now have 31 papers published, wow. <laughs> and we have about 15 more somewhere in the pipeline. So we're going to get close to 50 in this whole experiment. And these are published with high-class uh, reputable journals, all peer-reviewed uh, scientific journals, uh, uh, well-known throughout the world, and they all have the same results. We went from the, the small animal study then to human um, clinical trials, and we immediately went to uh, chronic disease because we, we know chronic disease is linked to infl inflammation and they sort of play on each other. Right. And uh, we did double-blind studies that people didn't know what they were eating. Um, they did crossover studies so that people ate one diet for eight months, eight, eight weeks and then had a washout period and then flipped over and ate the other diet for eight weeks. And then they did blood tests and all kinds of, of other analysis depending on what kind of uh, group you're studying. We did heart disease, irritable bowel syndrome, um, uh, diabetes, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome, and now we're just finishing a study on fibromyalgia. Wow. And it's all showing the same thing, that the, the biggest difference is the in inflammatory difference between modern wheat and anti-inflammatory difference between ancient wheat, and it's 30 to 50% difference. And the rest of the differences are like 8 to 12%. They're still significant and measurable, 
um, like lowering of cholesterol, lowering of blood sugar, lowering of insulin, lowering of insulin resistance, increasing of, of, of magnesium and zinc in the blood, calcium. So it, it's a very big difference that a very small kernel of grain is making in your diet. Right. Fascinating. <laughs> um, so I want to no, yeah, and I want to I want to talk more about um, the potential, the unique qualities in terms of how uh, Kamut grows and and sustainability as well. Um, we have to take a short break first, um, so we're going to take a quick break um, for a word from a sponsor, and then when we come back, we'll have more with Bob Quinn. This episode is brought to you by Café Patachou. Long described as a student union for adults, Café Patachou is an award-winning café serving world-class breakfast and lunch in the heart of Indianapolis. Created by Martha Hoover, Café Patachou began as a mission to open a restaurant that used the best local ingredients prepared expertly. What Martha would cook for her own family was exactly what she wanted for her restaurant guests. Café Patachou has since grown into a restaurant group and the Patachou Foundation. And while Martha is no longer in the kitchen whisking three eggs per omelet anymore, she is still spreading her passion for premium local ingredients, now in several concepts and locations. Learn more at patachouinc.com. That's P-A-T-A-C-H-O-U.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here with Bob Quinn, a farmer and author of the new book, Grain by Grain. Um, so before the break, we were talking a lot about uh, kamut, this ancient wheat that mm-hmm. you're growing. And um, we started to talk a little bit about um, some of the studies that you've been doing on potential health benefits. Um, I know that as an organic farmer, um, you, you know, I've seen some of your blogging. I know you're also passionate <laughs> about... Um, sustainability and how what you do impacts the environment um, and growing food that, um, you know, has a minimal impact. Um, mm-hmm. So does, how does Kamut fit into that? Like, is wheat a crop that has particular benefits in terms of an environmental perspective? Well, I think the advantage with the uh, Kamut course on wheat in any of the particularly any of the heirloom uh, type varieties of almost any um, crop is that they haven't been bred solely to produce extremely high yields. Mm. And to get high yields, you need high inputs. Uh, with organic agriculture, that's not our goal, is to have high, high yields and high outputs and therefore bring a lot of, of outside inputs onto the farm. Our goal is to, in regenerative organic agriculture at least, is to grow what we need right on the farm and to regenerate the soil in a way that can go on for eons. Mm-hmm. And without running out of any resource, because we're, we're recreating those resources every year through the power of the sun and and um, and the power of the plants to feed the soil. Right. And and the lower yielding crops lend themselves, like the Coruscant is, lend themselves easier to accomplishing those goals. And I think that's why it's a good fit. Right. Um, yeah. That, I mean that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you know you've. It's, it's just really interesting to find someone who has spent so much of their career on like this one, like sort of like bringing this one crop <laughs> to the world. Like that's really, I mean, it's, it's cool. <laughs> well, it's been a lot of fun. It wasn't, it's not my only focus and not the only focus of my book, but it's, right. it's a, it's kind of a, it's a main engine that 
was enabled us to drive through all the other research. It provided money for me to do the research we're talking about before the break. It provided money for me to um, continue experimenting on my farm, which uh, experiments don't make you money, but they bring you a lot of information, mm-hmm. and they're much help to other people who are having the same problems and looking for answers. Um, particularly when we first started, there was no research for organic anything. Yeah, and uh, if we wanted to figure out an answer to something, we just did it ourselves. We just did uh, their own, our own experiments, and then little by little, money became available. I became uh, had good good contacts with uh, Montana State University and the experiment station nearby, and we worked together. And when they had grants, and we opened up our farm to um, experiments there by by uh, researchers from the university, and so I could actually leverage a lot of what I was doing many, many fold by having um, the scientists from Montana State come and, and be part of our research on our farm. Right. Yeah. And so, and so you've just brought up the, the book. You said, you know, um, we, <laughs> this, this wheat is not the only um, topic in the book. Um, what, what made you decide to write a book? And so, you know, it's not the only topic. It's part of the story. But what, what's the message? What, what did you want to get out into the world? Well, that's why I decided to write a book so I could tell my message. Right. Because I noticed that in many cases, um, uh, people uh, who wrote books were given uh, audiences then to talk about their ideas. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, if that's the way it takes, that's what I'm going to do. And even though I'd never done it before, and I spent five years working on it before I um, joined up with a co-author, Liz Carlisle, who really I was able to do it in five months when I couldn't do it in five years mm-hmm. and uh, brought it to fruition and, and I'm really excited about it. I really want to share what I have seen and learned um, as an alternative to the quandary that we find ourselves in in industrial agriculture in this country and industrial food production, mm. which I think is bringing many unintended consequences that are quite severe to our society and to our country and even to the planet. Yeah. So, so, can you give me an example of like something that you've learned that um, that you elaborate on in the book? That, sure, that, sure. Know. I can. Um, uh, I like to talk about the high cost of cheap food. Oh yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It's one of my <laughs> okay. favorite topics, so it's perfect. <laughs> so anyway, to me, the high cost of cheap food starts first with the high cost of the farmers, because in the conventional um, industrial model, the farmers aren't paid um, enough to hardly even make a living, um, and the cost of chemical inputs is driving some of them out of business in times when the prices go down, which they are right now. Prices are quite depressed in the grain belt, and yet the cost of chemicals aren't depressed, and so how are you going to make up the difference? Some, uh, if they're too close to the edge of of liquidity on their farm, they they can't make up the difference, and they they have to sell or they have to leave or or they go out of business. I think that's a very high cost to the farmers to start with because they're not receiving a fair return for what they are doing and their efforts that they're putting into their farm. Um, and yet they're producing abundance of cheap grain mm-hmm. to feed the cheap food um, drive or goal in this country. The next um, segment to really suffer for paying the high cost of cheap food is the communities that those farmers used to serve and to use, where they used to shop and do business and where their kids used to go to school. And when they disappear... Um, it puts the strain on Main Street and small towns so that they start going out of business. Many businesses can't right. survive the loss of, of clientele, <clears throat> which 
further strains the schools and the schools go down small enough, they start to close. And it's just a, a domino effect. So it's really going the wrong direction for what we want to do in um, keeping our rural um, parts of this country, which are quite a large, vast um, uh, segment of the country, uh, viable and healthy. The next cost that we pay is the cost to our environment and to our planet. We have now um, glyphosate in the rain. I suppose uh, many, you, Lisa, or many of your um, listeners saw the articles that I saw yesterday in, the, in USA Today about now finding glyphosate in wine and beer throughout the country. Interesting. And so it's more and more, uh, as we look, it's there. Mm-hmm. And we even find uh, glyphosate in the rainwater that falls on our farm, which is a big shock. About three years ago, we discovered this. And it's um, a case where a chemical was... Uh, promised to be benign, to stay where it was put, <clears throat> to do its job without any harm. And none of that's true. Yeah. And none of that's true. And we have to look at alternative alternatives to that. I think that we are nearing the end of the great chemical experiment that we've been on the last 70 years. And the sooner we can revitalize the soil and depend on that too uh, for our crop nutrition and, and nourishing our bodies and the bodies of those that eat our food, the better off we're going to be. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting topic. And I, I think, so this, this idea that there are these costs and when food is cheap, there's, it's cheap because we, we are all sort of paying for it just in That's different right. ways, That's right. In the, right? In the last big subject, there's four, yeah. and the last big one is the cost to our health. Right. So people have seen in this country from 19... Uh, 41 to the day, the cost of their food has decreased 60%. So what do you suppose they've done with all that money that they saved? I'll give you one idea where most of it's gone. The cost of health care has increased by 60%. Right. So almost everything we've saved in the cost of cheap food is now going to pay for mostly chronic disease and other maladies that are um, having to be paid for, at, at not at the checkout counter at the grocery store. But there's a doctor's office and the pharmacy and in the hospitals and, and uh, nursing homes um, in the tune that completely obliterates all those savings for cheap food. Yeah. No, it's and it, but it, it's interesting because people, I think when you talk to the people about this, they inherently get it. But then I have such trouble kind of like getting sort of explaining this in a way that um, kind of is able to go up against the idea that people are just used to paying they food being cheap, right? right. And so then they yeah. still, you get to the grocery store and they still want to buy the cheap thing. And I guess it's, I guess how, when you talk to people about this, do you, do you find that um, people respond to it and that you think <laughs> that they're actually, get, they're, they might change their purchasing habits based on, because um, I don't, it, it's That's tricky. why I wrote a book. <laughs> <That's why> I, <laughs> and I don't go to the grocery store with them, so I don't know what the effect is. Right. But um, I would hope you know uh, that it would make an, a difference. But what we need is, I think, a little more of a constant reminder. You know, if we had a little label on every food that we bought giving us an index in nutrition, for mm. example, and the cost of that nutrition, then this cost, then the cheap food wouldn't look so cheap because you could buy this loaf of bread for maybe $4, but it would last your family a lot longer because you don't need to eat as much because it's so full of nutrition. Or you could buy the dollar ninety-eight one that... You have to eat twice as much to keep full, and there's no nutrition there about very little um, compared to the um, the more expensive nutrition, the um, uh, rich mm. uh, loaf of bread. For example, I mean that's just a kind of a uh, an example out of the air. But if we had a way of thinking that reminded us of what we were 
actually investing in. Um, people say, oh my gosh, I don't have any money. But um, and it's, and it, costs, it costs a lot of money to, to buy more, to spend more money at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. I say to them, well, how much does it cost to be sick? Yeah. It costs way more to be sick. But since you're not sick today, people don't think about that. Um, but people who have loved ones or good friends who are sick today, some of those people really think about it a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and, you know, a lot of times then you get pushback where people say, well, a lot of people just still can't afford that, can't afford to pay more. And I think there are a lot of people in a lot of communities that can't, but that's an issue with wages, right? That's, yeah, an issue that's, with, one, that's one problem is wages not yeah. being fair and particularly in the food sector. Um, if you look at minimum wage and, and, and low paying jobs, the food sector has more than their share. Yeah. But if you're in that situation, here's some ideas of what you can do. Great. When you go to the store, don't buy the, you know, the, um, the frozen entrees that cost 20 times what the raw material would cost. With, with our grain, for the example, the, just an example, you could buy that at the store for a dollar to a pound. It's expensive. But if you buy this grain and take that home and crack it and, and cook it up for hot cereal for breakfast like you would on a winter day like for mm-hmm. in the middle of now you could feed a family of four for less than 50 cents hmm. now I, I you can't tell me that's expensive that's not expensive no. but it's a way of eating and a way of thinking and it takes 10 minutes to prepare i mean i do it in my in my kitchen once or twice a week i have hot cereal and it takes 10 minutes to fix and to and to, and to enjoy it's great i love it and um but if people would get in the habit of eating more Certainly more local, more seasonal, growing, a, if they have any kind of a, a garden spot or even a place to put a planter in their, in their porch, trying to grow a few of their own vegetables or things that they would eat, all those things go a long way uh, in buying basic stuff. Mm-hmm. And then spending a little time cooking. Make that fun. Don't look at cooking as a chore. Make it a, a social op- opportunity with your with your spouse, with your kids, with whatever, and make it fun. Don't make it a drudgery. <laughs> I know that's easier said than done. But for me, it's fun, especially if I'm taking something I've grown out of my garden or I'm having my root cellar, and I bring it in the house and I make something out of it. And it's sometimes, it takes 15 or 20 minutes sometimes. Um, but I, I have great satisfaction from, with that. Mm. What um, you mentioned, uh, kamut, like you can make it like a hot cereal, like an oatmeal sure. um, kind uh-huh. of, yeah. yeah. So, uh, what other like I haven't seen it in that many other forms. Like, what? How is it available to people? Well, it's available point? in any way you want to eat wheat. You can find kamut. Okay. Um, it's not as available in this country as it is in Italy, which is our biggest market in uh, in the recent past. But you can find it in breads, all kinds of bread products. Mm. Um, here in New York, Susie's makes a great flatbread. Um, um, you can find it in pastas, so it's it's really close to relative to germ, as I mentioned earlier. Mm. So it's easy to make pasta with it. Um, Eden Foods makes great pasta. They're found in your health food stores. Bob's Red Mill has it as grain, flour, and hot cereal already um, uh, ground for you if you like to just buy it ready ready to eat. And, and they're found all over the country. Um, there's sprouted kamut coming out of um, uh, a customer in Alabama, mm. so you can have sprouted flowers if you want. Um, and there are some snacks and and other pizzas. Sometimes uh, in California, there's a pizza truck that's using just Kamut. It's fabulous, and people who can't eat modern wheat pizza, you know, love that sort of thing. But anyway, it's it's available at their health food stores. If you don't see it, you can ask for it. If they carry a brand you recognize, like Eden Foods or Bob Red Mill, they can get it okay. without too much trouble. But sometimes it's because people don't know about it as much as uh, we'd like, I guess. Yeah. Say. Um, and, and the stores have it. 
all carried it because people haven't asked for it. Um, Nature's Path is probably our biggest single customer. They make um, heritage uh, cold cereal, and it's mostly mm-hmm. Kamut in it. It doesn't say Kamut on the front, but it says Kamut on the back, so you can look and see what the ingredients are. So it's available in all the main types of foods that you would eat that have wheat. Got it. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm going to look for it more now. All right, for great. Sure. I hope you enjoy it. That's great. Um, and so um, we have to, to wrap up, unfortunately. Um, but before we do that, um, where can people find you, find your book, um, if they want to follow up and find out more? Well, thanks, Lisa. That's a great question. The book is going to be released on the fifth day of March, which is just right around the corner now. And once that date passes, you can mm. get it at your local bookstore, at uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com. Uh, as far as information, you can hashtag me at Grain by Grain. Uh, welcome to join that anytime, those conversations. And also look at my blog and the um, and the other uh, uh, social media accounts on Instagram at uh, Bob Quinn Organic Farmer. <laughs> I love that you're so active. You know, you're farming, you've got a book, and you're on Instagram. Well, <laughs> you've got a lot going on. I've leased out my farm. It was time for the next generation to take over. I had right. my turn. Now it's their turn. So I am trying to wind a few things down as I ramp up a few other things. So I'm trying to keep a little balance in my life. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you, Lisa. It's great. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate, and share it. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.